Hey, Eric. What's it now, Scott? We have an ad read to do. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. To do so, you need to head over to Fangoria.com and... You seem very excited about this, Scott. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful deal. It is. An, it's an incredible deal. And you can get a further 25% off your annual subscription when you enter in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout. What is that code again? I did not hear you the first time, and I only just picked up a pen. It is KINGCAST. Very easy to remember. Okay, shut up and let's do the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. I'm going to get right to it. Our guest today is the award-winning author behind Only Revolutions, The 50-Year Sword, five entries in the the Familiar series, as well as 2000's all-timer horror classic, House of Leaves, a novel which is still generating a rabid fan base a full 20 years after its release. Listeners, it is my distinct honor to welcome Mark Z. Danielewski to the KingCast stage. How are you doing, Mark? I am doing very well. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, we're so excited to have you. The last time I talked to you was several years ago, um, around about the time you were circulating the the script for the a pilot to the, the House of Leaves series. And I still get the occasional email from a reader who's only just discovering that article now asking for updates. And I was like, I'm not, I have no updates to provide. So I imagine you must... Or, well, no one has your email address, do you? So they're probably not bothering you about that. There are, there are whispers out there. I mean, the, uh, the three uh, episodes uh, continue to be uh, read. You can, you can buy them on the, my website. And, they were great, uh, by the way. Or pass them along to a friend, you know, whatever. But it, yeah, I think it's kind of fun and, and sort of speculation about what could happen. And, and uh, especially if it sort of embraced this direction is 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 kind of fun and you know there's continues to be whispers in hollywood so you never know i think someone's gonna get around to it i think one of these streamers is gonna wise up one day and be like what the fuck are we doing like let's just make this this crazy thing those scripts were so so awesome it i mean it's kind of it's kind of fun in a way like the book that this television series exists only as scripts in a way. Like I've started to like it more and more that idea that I almost, I could also go back to the idea of just never seeing it made of just allowing the, the, the reader to sort of cast and produce that television series. Yeah. It's um, and, and for anyone that hasn't read those scripts, uh, Mark, do you want to tell them the, the URL if they'd like to? 
can just go to marksydanielewski.com and uh, there'll be a, a bunch of uh, sort of rabbit holes you can go down if you want to visit the forums or, or check out the scripts or, you know, um, check out a, a nice little mug with a candle in it. Do it all. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like a good mud, mug with a candle in it? Come on. But yeah, those- we could have used that when uh, Texas was frozen over a couple weeks ago. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that I, I was miserable. I, I had know. friends sending me pictures of like their flowers, like encased in ice. Yeah. Oh, pretty the amazing. Fla- entire neighborhoods encased in ice. Yeah. Right. I was on the verge of knocking my fence down with an axe for firewood. It was crazy over here. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It turned into the road real quick. <laughs> it only <laughs> yeah. took about 24 hours of no, uh, no power in, uh, in a natural disaster. You really don't realize like how boned you are if the power just shuts off and it's off, period. You know, like it's it's normally like an inconvenience that lasts a few hours, but that one was like days at a time. It was, it was like it's, 39 it's, degrees it's, in my house. It's true. There's a real it's it's the, the heart of terror is sometimes in that in in that sim- simplicity of deprivation. And I think that's in particular, why I'm excited to talk about Cujo, because, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some ways it, it's Stephen King just stripped down to these kind of minute maneuverings of moments and mm-hmm. uh, and how how terrifying just a certain situation can become that doesn't need to be elated necessarily by, you know, you know, tremendous cinematic graphics effects. Mm-hmm. Which is probably a good segue into... Us asking what your Stephen King origin story is. When did he as a, a pop culture presence as a as an institution? When did he first come onto your radar? Was it with a movie or a book or? Well, actually, it, it was it was via the movie Carrie, but my parents deemed me too young to see the movie, and uh, my mother said, "Well, you can read the book if you'd like," and <laughs> and that was it. That's when it started. I was like, "Okay, I'll read this book," and. I remember waiting to be terrified by it, and I certainly, you know, got the shivers. But I think um, what so impressed me and stuck with me was how uh, how thrilled I was by it. And uh, you know, maybe even there's a there's a bit of a sort of typographical influence um, that I I need to credit Mr. King with because in that book you'll recall there are also passages something he keeps up in his later books as well but that are in italic the way he sort of yep. sets aside you know um, certain texts to indicate that this is a thought or right. or even a fear impulse and we see it in Cujo as well you know even the dog you know personifies the the, the characters in his world as the woman in all caps right but it was it was kind of just this kind of miracle to read. And then I can remember later reading, you know, Dead Zone and Firestarter and and then, of course, uh, Cujo. And now this time it was it was well before the a year before the movie came out. Um, and so that was a was was a great experience. I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit while we're on the subject of the since we don't really we haven't had many authors on the show we've had a lot of actors and directors uh, screenwriters but not authors and you touched on something there in the craft of king and how that weirdly will stick with you and i have an example of my use as a writer of uh, parentheses 
is uh, I realized maybe 10, 15 years ago as I was going back through like some older King stuff, I'm like, oh, I stole this where I don't make in when I'm writing, I'll, I'll instead of doing like just a comma and then here's kind of the second thought and then a comma or whatever or mm-hmm. a dash or whatever, I throw that into parentheses like, you know, I was walking down, you know, the road, which just happened to be where I, you know, kissed a girl for the first time. Like that'll go in a parentheses. And I realized I stole that directly from King. And like so much of like what I think of as where like paragraph breaks should be like all that is just I I can draw a direct line to King. Have you noticed that, I guess, in your own work? I think one of the things that Stephen King does so well, and it it certainly marks my adolescent reading, um, was just opening doors to possibilities, you know, possibilities of feeling, of, of vernacular, of language. You know, as I sort of headed into high school and started to immerse myself more in the classics, it was it was always refreshing to to encounter Stephen King's use of 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 just expressions that were so familiar or rock bands that were familiar. I think I even recall an author photo where he had a um, a Gibson guitar playing, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And so it was like this guy was pretty cool, and that that in itself was was exciting because it it, it sort of stood a little outside of 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 the formality of of a lot of the the books that I was I, that I had to read for say an English class or you know I was falling into, but certainly I think you know just to maybe harp a little on on the word stolen, you know I mean. You know, good writers are really they they transmit their times. You know, they they condense their times and they they condense the history of their own literary and 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 physical experience. And so, you know, that it, it would be an interesting question to Stephen King about what were what who were the authors that influenced that kind of typographical element for him. You know, was it? Was it more poetic and classical, like, you know, you'd say like the 60s, you know, um, 50s, 60s poets like E.E. Cummings or earlier, or was it advertisement, you know, or what were what were the things that shaped his desire to sort of change the type a bit? And, uh, you know, certainly we we can go back to Faulkner, who who was an early proponent of using um colored text to differentiate mm. between voices. Uh, right. My blue house is hardly, you know, out of the blue. It was, it was built on this tradition of, you know, of, of what we can do to better express ourselves with this extremely limited and yet capacious alphabet. Did you ever read uh, his Bachman stuff? Uh, yes. What did I read? I think I read thinner and I think that was, I think that was it. Oh man, you got to read. You got to read the long walk. I feel like you would appreciate the long walk. The long walk, making a note of it, right? Or now. even, or even the Running Man, you know, which is completely different from the movie. And uh, I, I think I would- did read the Running Man actually, <clears throat> uh, but it's you know, there's certain parts now of my my adolescence that have gotten more and more vague, which is why it was kind of fun to reread Cujo because I hadn't I hadn't read it since I was uh, a teenager, and uh, it was sort of thrilling to read and counter it right and you notice I, the sex stuff a little bit more now maybe oh no <laughs> that, no, i don't melodrama? notice that at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, i think i think i definitely noticed it more on my first reading because i was like a kid and it was just the weird sexuality of it was like 
I don't, I don't know if I had, I had encountered that. So like the guy jerking off on the bed and all that, like, I don't, I don't know that I encountered something like that in writing before or at all before, you know, I think I was too young for that specifically. Like the, the, the train sequence that we've brought up multiple times on the show from it, I recognize as a very sexual scene, you know, right. and, and uh, there's also like a, a group masturbation scene in that, in that book as well. Yes, that is very sexual. I, I can understand what's going on here, but you know, I, I think I was too young. I was in sixth grade when I read Cujo and right. uh, yeah. I, yeah. I just don't think I understood what, what jizz on bet bet sheets meant there. You know, I just don't, you know, not to uh, get too blue here. Uh, although I don't know how much bluer we could possibly go after <laughs> we've, we've said the words jizz on bed sheets, but, uh, uh, but you know what I mean? Like it, it, it didn't strike me as, as a sexual act in a weird way and reading it um, at that age. Cause it's not, you know, a guy and a girl, which is, I think at that age is all I kind of understood what sex was. Well, it's interesting to, when you, when we, when you start to, to locate the sexuality in Cujo, it, it seems very particular in his books. I mean, you can certainly look at, at, at erotic energy as being present in a, in a lot of authors. But, you know, I think one of the things, uh, you, shall we dive into the movie in the book? Yeah, let's, yeah, do, let's it. do it. Let's go okay. for it. So one of the things that I, I mean, one of the overall questions that I, that I just wanted to ask, and I would love an answer personally, if we could come up with, is that is, is should Cujo be remade? You know, that was the thing that I kept kind of toying with in my mind. Like, well, what do you we, mean? What do you mean by should? Uh, in other words, is it is it is the, is it time for a movie about Cujo about to revisit this book and to to redo it the way it should be done? Because for me, what I got was was how much was missing in the movie version, and mm-hmm. and it was funny because I have a palpable memory of both the book and the movie and the movie had a kind of mean like quality because even if, even if you didn't see the movie, kids became Cujo. Like I can still remember, I think maybe being in a carpool where some friends ran up kind of on all fours and then thumped the side of the, the car door as hard as they could and then raised their, their their frothing mouths to the window and started going, <laughs> Cujo, Cujo, saliva covering the glass, you know. <laughs> the mother behind the wheel shocked, you know, the glee just, you know, erupting and then on to the next, you know, victim. And, and it was just something that, you know, that sort of permeated the hallways. And it was just this simple idea of the dog gone bad and the dog attacking you in the car or, you know, in a hallway or, or, or you know, banging on your door in the bathroom stall, you know. It yeah. Was just, and, and the deeper horror of some, something that you loved that loved you, that's now a danger to you, which is something that, King has done multiple times as Jack Torrance. Um, right. Cujo is, is a, is a sad read or sad. I mean, not just because of the ending. It, it was sad because Cujo King is very talented at getting in the minds of his characters and he gets in the mind of the dog in this. And it is so sad to see him forget the boy. Right. And then he remembers the boy in just enough time. So he doesn't kill him. You know, you could make an, or an allusion to a, like dementia or somebody slipping away and losing the personality. And, and it, it just struck me as sad. Like I, Cujo was scary, but you know, he's also a very sad threat, sad, bad guy. Well, I think what, I think what you're, you're touching on Eric wonderfully is that, is that that's kind of what the movie 
um, mist evaporates. Yeah, right. it just it leaches away that quality. So it's just it's it's simply this bad dog. Even though it's kind of a it's kind of problematic the way it's filmed because you can kind of see this wonderful Saint Bernard. I think there were four that they used to sh- shooting the movie. Yeah. That's plus kind of wagging a, plus a right? guy in a suit. So it's kind of like you know you could kind of see that wagging tail. You know you yeah. kind of you know and it, it, it and I think that's why I, I I wanted to to sort of get into it because it's a fascinating movie and it's, I mean, it's a fascinating book and adaptation because you can, we can even look at the tradition, right? It starts, you know, I can't think of one that predates this, but at least 1963 with Hitchcock's The Birds, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we even get a weird little movie called Frogs in 72. And then in 75, (laughs) we of course have the real progenitor, which is Jaws. Jaws, And then Jaws gives us Grizzly and Orca and (laughs) Piranha And I'm sure I've missed some, but alligator, alligator. And of course, (laughs) uh, you know, maybe even snakes on the plane. It depends how far you want to go, but, but they're all easy subjects to demonize, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. back then it was easy to demonize sharks. We didn't really understand what, you know, even Peter Benchley would come out later and saying was a mistake, right? Grizzlies, you could say, wow, they're just towering and just destructive and, you know, uh, you know, I, I can understand that. Orcas, piranhas, snakes, whatever. But now King comes along and says, I'm going to do it about a St. Bernard. Not just a dog, not just boy man's best friend, right? But a St. Bernard that was known to rescue children, right? That would go into <laughs> and find a poor child that was buried under snow coax it to get on its back and bring it back to safety and this is what this is what king is going to destroy and and famously carrying uh, a comic book uh jug of alcohol with x's uh, under its uh, throat exactly. he would have with he would have that, uh, that is, barrel that is, of booze that is precisely right and so it, it in some ways you know, I think I admire the, the 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 ambition there. You know, there's even a line later on where he calls calls he refers to Cujo as Moby Dog, right? He even recognizes that well, what Melville did for the whale with Moby Dick, I'm going to do with the Saint Bernard. Right. And I think there's a kind of almost manic elation and energy to this description. And, and I think it's what fueled a lot of adolescent boys like myself to just run around screaming Cujo and slobbering on windows. But the book itself, especially on a, on, on a reread, and this is getting back to what you were saying, is, is a much sadder book. That's what I kept trying to locate. I kept trying to understand what its sadness was. Because in one, in one sense, right, we have to look at it in terms of the book itself, but in another sense, we have to look about at how that sadness has been reamplified by the context of the times that we're in, you know, in a state of, of massive global change, of, you know, endangerment to so many species, so much animal life, you know, that it's, it's hard to see humans as necessarily the victims here. And in fact, I think King early on nails it because its sexuality happens almost all of it with the one scene that we've already described 
off screen. And that I think was one of the first huge errors in the movie is it actually, it actually shows Donna Trenton D Wallace with um, Steve Kemp in bed Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. a moment. Right. But King beautifully just starts off with the scene of Steve Kemp coming into the, the home wanting Donna and nearly raping her as she says, get out, get out, get out. So we don't need to know that intimacy. This is like post intimacy. This is post affair. And now the breakup has occurred. And with that breakup comes this kind of fraught sexual violence, which is ultimately in a kind of humiliating way, right? Played out on the bed sheets in an empty house. I mean, Talk about something that's not fruitful, that's not satisfying, that's almost childish. Purely an act of aggression. An act of aggression, but futile And tantrum, yeah. You know, and also one that leaves him what? What is his accomplishment except sort of to elicit disgust by everyone who encounters it, right? So what do we make of that? Like, what is that about? Why is it, why is it even in this book? I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> um, I, I think it might really just be a, a plotting thing because you needed to have the cops tied up thinking that he had something to do with the disappearance, right? You know, so you needed to have him make a big grand statement that is obviously, you know, that can be proven proven to have been him, essentially, you know, destroying this house as the this mother and the child are unaccounted for. And so you need to have them tied up so they don't just automatically you know, start chasing down every lead of, of every place that she was scheduled to go before she disappeared and thus finding her in time. You know, I it really honestly just might have been King getting to that point. I need to have an excuse for why the cops haven't figured out she's, you know, at this place but, where she said she was going to be going, you know. But to Mark's point, like, it didn't have to be that act. You know, it it could have just been destruction of the house. He could have He could have rolled up. Right. Threw some rocks through the windows and made his point just as well. And it would still serve the same function within a plotting as a, as a plot mechanism. Right. right. But I guess making, having, having that weird sexual aspect of it, it, it takes any away, any doubt that it is this person she's had an affair with and broke it off with. You know what I mean? I mean, you're right. There's probably is something deeper there that I'm not really grasping, but the, the way that I interpreted it was pretty much just a very simple straightforward they needed to know that it's for sure this guy and this is the guy they need to focus on so they're not actually looking in the right place for uh, to find uh, poor Donna and her kid well I think you're you're right but I think it's um, it's a discredit to Stephen King to think right. he, it's <laughs> only because of the plot I mean right here's a here's an author with a, you know, an extraordinary creative imagination that could come up with, you know, a trillion ways to make that plot square. And instead he picks this manner, you know, and it's, uh, it's one of these moments in the movie where I think the air immediately starts to go out of the film because Mm. the film doesn't really understand what the movie it's making. It, it, It thinks it's just a sort of, a revamping of the Jaws, you know, plot devices. Stuck, but stuck on a boat yeah, right. or stuck in the car. Exactly, or stuck in a car, precisely. Um, but and, also, don't you think that's the movie Hollywood would want out of this book? You know, Cujo, you, you say the word Cujo to someone, even if they haven't read the book, 
and I doubt all those kids that were coming up and slobbering on your window and terrorizing you uh, <laughs> by banging against the car, like had read Cujo or knew the full weight of it. It's iconic. It's a bad dog. Right. You know, and that's that's a, that's absolutely how the studio system would look at this. Yes. You know, they don't need all the nuance of the the cheating wife and the abuse going on in the household um, out at the farm. Like, no, 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 no. This is a movie about a dog who's who's very mean and wants to kill a, a, a lady and her kid. And so to like loop back around to your original question, what you're proposing in terms of a remake, I think, is if some if it's one that's going to incorporate all the nuance of Cujo. You're looking at a three or four hour limited series, maybe, you know, that can really sell all these this symphony of emotions and and betrayals and, you know, horror that are going on in the in the book. But I can't imagine like a studio stepping up to the plate to make that version, maybe a streamer. Maybe you can write it, Mark, but (laughs) but but certainly not like like Warner Brothers isn't going to remake Cujo and have it be about all the damage that the humans are doing to each other in the story. It's, it's going to come down to a dog versus a mom and her kid in a car. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think it's, you know, you can, I mean, you're right. It, it, it's, it's problematic. You can imagine how a studio would, would approach a remake, you know, well, one of the advantages today is that the, the, the dog itself could be CGI completely. Right that would allow it to be even more gruesome in its visage. And we could put like red lights in its eyes. And, you know, it could be, uh, it could be a demon dog. And in some ways mm-hmm. it could become a zombie dog because that's the other thing that Cujo is, right? It's a, it's a zombie book. It's, we only have one zombie, but it is exactly, it is a brutal, you know, flesh feasting zombie that has cornered this, this poor woman and her, and her son. And I think that too would be a misstep. And I, you know, for sure, I, I think you're you're right. One can easily see this how it could be a, a mini, a, sort of a limited series. But but I think one of the great things about a, a about a, a truly accomplished screenwriter is that a two two hours can still condense an enormous amount of experience. Now, whether it's possible, I, I don't think we can answer today. But it is. I, I think before we can even comprehend whether it's a limited series or a movie is to really find out, is there a way of even proposing such a thing? Because there are things in the book that I found are creaky. They don't quite make sense. And maybe it's part of the reason that I keep thinking about this book more than other books in the sense that why is Tad looking into his closet where he perceives fearful things um, connected to the Camber's place where Cujo is. What do you think? It could be just as simple as establishing the fact that this is a scared kid. This is a kid that sees shadows in the dark, that fears the unknown and, and fears being eaten by a monster. There's almost certainly more to it than that. You know, but I know that that King's had to answer a couple of things. And, and to your point on the creakiness of it, is it muddies it a little bit where people assumed that whatever the the monster in the closet was 
was the thing that was possessing this dog that the rabies or the, the, the bat bite or whatever was such a, a smaller thing. And he had to answer like that a lot going, no, it's, you know, it's not that it's, it's just, a, you know, it's just a dog that is slowly dying and losing its mind. And, you know, it, it's not a supernatural thing. He's had to say that multiple times, but because he's, you know, so obsessed and with, with the, the monster in the closet, which they heavily, insinuate both in the movie and in the the book that there's actually a, an evil presence there you can say it's death or you know or foreshadowing of of you know darkness or something uh but they they even insinuate that it, it could potentially be the spirit of the killer from the dead zone because it takes place in the right. same town right yeah there um, was a version of the script that didn't get made obviously but that tied that directly maybe it's the the spirit of this killer that's inhabited the dog and they they just threw that right out. Yeah, no, and I mean that that sucks too. Because what's interesting about Cujo as is that it, it's kind of like what you were saying was interesting about Jaws. Great white sharks do exist. You know, do they act exactly that way? No, not really. You know, but it is within the realm of believability. And what makes Cujo scary is the fact that you know dogs do go rabid. You know, things can can happen. There could feasibly be in a situation, we talked about us losing our power, you know, how helpless we felt there. And Donna Trent's stuck in her car, like we were stuck in our house in in this freeze, and we couldn't leave. The roads were were, uh, uh, unmanageable. We couldn't leave without uh, crashing our cars. You know, she she's sitting in a dead car, you know, with this thing breathing down her neck. There's something relatable to it that, that people instinctually understand. I think the more you try to lean into the supernatural, the less scary this particular story totally. is. And I, I don't think you need to. I, I think in some ways, one of the things that, that Stephen King has championed, um, and beautifully so through a number of his books, is just the you know the sensitivity of children, right? right. Is that Tad is able to pick something up. Now, whether it's a, a shining or whether it's just simply his ability to to sense that something is off that parents don't believe that parents can't listen to i think is actually the the part that's more scary and moving you know it's um i was watching a show last night with my daughter about elephants and uh you know this this matriarch decides that that it's time to leave this drought area and um head in a, in a, in a direction towards home and it looks futile and the drought is ravaging them and the area around and then rain comes. And the show at least reports that, that this seems mystical and that, that elephants have been known to bring rain. It's been sort of, it's kind of a cultural association. It's been around for hundreds and maybe thousands of years. Um, but the latest, um, uh, notion is that, that they can sense rain a hundred miles away. You know, which is just a wonderful idea and almost mystical in its own way that just an elephant can hear the rain that far away. Yeah, how could and, that even be? I mean, you know, it's it's amazing, you know, how blue whales or or even elephants themselves can communicate through their feet. They can hear the progress of other elephants through the sort of low frequencies that are generated by the footfalls. So they're far more in contact with one another than, than one might suppose. But I think what King does in this beautiful way is he kind of says, well, hey, maybe this kid is picking up on something. And why do we always have to shut that down? And, you know, this is where he and I are very different as authors, because he has often advocated being sort of the unreflected upon writer. And I don't want to do him a disservice by saying that he doesn't reflect on what he's writing, but he's 
he wholeheartedly embraces that just sort of creative impulse that doesn't necessarily need to be re-examined or analyzed. And I'm definitely on the other side of the spectrum. I, I like to to write something, go through it, understand it, reapproach it, and 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 that's you know that's evidence certainly in in House of Leaves. Which, by and the I way, think, and I think well, that's his energy. Sorry, it was just that instinctual energy that is just that is just raw and powerful in Cujo. That brings me to a question I had for you, uh, specifically about House of Leaves, because Stephen King appears in the novel as a character uh, toward the end. Uh, spoiler for anyone that hasn't read House of Leaves, you had 20 years. I'm sorry. Exactly. Um, I'm curious, uh, first of all, what your, you know, what your thinking was behind including him. I think Kubrick's in there as well. Mm-hmm. You've got a number of very specific people that appear in a sort of a, I don't want to call it a montage sequence, but it's, you know, a series of interviews that are taking place. And I'm curious what your thinking was behind including King. And also if you've ever heard from King about that or touch base with him beforehand somehow. Well, I've never, I've never heard from him. Uh, I did for a while send uh, a holiday card, which uh, other readers and occasional errant uh, visitors on a Facebook page or Twitter account were suddenly sent. But uh, I have no idea what his response would be. I mean, I, I, I would hope that he would recognize it uh, for what it is, which is that, that House of Leaves tries to be in its weird sort of shadowy way, absolutely transparent about its own DNA, its own influences. And mm-hmm. so part of his presence there is, is simply to, to give the nod that, you know, that he was, you know, certainly an influence, um, on, on my work. Um, but then Brett Easton Ellis wrote a, a beautiful blurb for house of leaves where he had Stephen King and, and others bowing at my, <laughs> he said, so he sort of picked a fight for me. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis picking a fight? I can't imagine that. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, it's a wonderful thing to say. But certainly, you know, granting granting space, if you will, for for those voices. And I think King's is a is a particularly, you know, powerful voice. And I've had this, you know, this early, you know, relationship with his books, but then I've also had this sort of long-running dissatisfaction with with the adaptations. And I think part of it is that Stephen King is, is, is not fairly recognized for what he's actually putting into the book. And it may be that as, as vociferous as he might be about, like, you know, denying that there's a supernatural element to Cujo, he's not quite coming forth with all the answers, which I applaud him for, you know, because I think there is something to Cujo that has gone missed. Um, and I, and I felt, I felt it when, you know, like a sort of an electric jolt when I was, when I was reading it this time to understand that, that this was maybe one of his more personal books and that, that what he was writing about was, was how goodness can become distorted by human appetites and energies. And as I'm sure you both know, you know, King, when he was writing Cujo was, it was in the in the midst of battling his own sort of, right. you know, drug and alcoholic um, dependencies. 
And if you, and, and I think he's even quipped once, like he can't even remember writing it. That's true. Was, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so, and I, and, and when you begin to see it, think again, what you brought up so beautifully of that caricature of the St. Bernard carrying a cask of brandy. Right. Of alcohol. This is alcoholism. This is that kind of excessive appetite that just begins to destroy everything around you. It alienates your wife, right? Even who's the first to go but Joe Camber's friend, who's a total alcoholic, who's, who's made a, a commitment to drinking himself to death, and Cujo destroys him, right? Joe Camber's, who's a sort of, you know, wife hating, you know, alcoholic on some level is next to go, right? This is this awful force. And now it's now threatening the alienated wife. And worst of all, what does it do? It kills the boy. At the very end, it goes so far as to kill the child. And it's the mother who stayed, the mother who got caught up in that, you know. And, and, And why does he pick a dog for that because the dog is also uh, sort of uninfluenced by whatever you want to call it, the rabies or the alcoholism, that dog would have died to protect the kid. And instead it has been completely distorted. So the father that would protect his friends, that would protect his, his wife, that would, you know, that would, you know, protect his children, other people's children is gone into this just kind of, you know, family eating menace. And yet we feel sorry for the dog. We understand that there is just this heartbreaking theme of neglect. The dog is neglected. No one sees the dog, you know, except for the boy. And the mother is, says, you're too little to take this on. So I'm going to protect you and I'm going to take you away. And that's the first boy, right? Yeah. And then the second one is completely like thrown into the, you know, into the mix unawares, but has maybe a sense of it because he picks up in his own house, the kind of disruptions that are going on. And so that's what I see, you know, Cujo as, and I think there could be a beautiful movie that's really, that how it would be framed is complicated, but that could really, you know, look at, at, at a dog that sort of succumbs to, to this kind of energy, but aligning it more accurately to kind of the, the behavior that on screen would become really clear as problematic. Too many drinks, too much this, too too much absence, et cetera, et cetera. You know? And as as many an alcoholic will know, there's no sexual satisfaction at the end of that road either. Whatever fantasies you may have, you know, after a few beers, by the end, you know, you've trashed the house and you're alone and you've left your your romantic, you know, signature on, on the bed sheets by yourself. <laughs> right. Holy shit, was that a great take. Um, <laughs> that was, that's an incredible read. That would not have occurred to me. But I, I do, I do like framing the boogeyman that Tad sees as really the specter of his, the problems within the family that the family's on the verge of, of breaking. Um, because obviously that's a, a big theme here. As you mentioned, the Cambers, you know, the wife is, is trying desperately to leave an abusive relationship you know, uh, Donna's cheated, you know, and, and her, her family and that's causing strife. And you don't know it's a, the only families we see in this are either splitting up or on the verge of splitting up. And, uh, and then that's all like brought to a head with, with Donna and uh, Tad in the car. 
Um, it, it really is. It's a fascinating angle. And you're right. Embracing that would be the way to go with, with an adaptation. I do wonder if once, just cinematically, do you think that once she's there and she's trapped in the car, I kind of feel like maybe you don't leave you stay with her for that, that time. Maybe that's me just wanting to further rip off uh, jaws, which is one of my favorite movies, but it's not like once they're out on the boat, you're always cutting back to see what Ellen Brody's doing. And you know, you, you know what I mean? Like once you're there and you're in it, you're in it. And that kind of makes it more immersive and scarier. What? Like not, not cutting back to the police investigation or the right. And, and, uh, you know, I, I can see a world where you lay all the melodrama side of it. You lay the family stuff at the beginning, anything you could know about, like, this is how they would find her. you like, all those clues are there. Um, but, uh, but I don't know how you can do that and not, uh, really lean into that, uh, family splitting theme that we've been talking about. So, well, I mean, this is, th- this is the fun part because there's so many ways you could go. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could also look at it as the, as the. The Saint Bernard is is kind of what um, Harold Bloom called sort of the covering cherub. It's the it's the image that you can see, but it includes it, it include it includes what what matters behind the sort of the the flaming sword. Uh, Freud called it a screen memory, you know. So it's something that you you keep thinking it's the dog, but you can't quite see the fact that it's actually your old, your own father who's raging in the house. Right. And, you know, so what if it was more of a sort of an investigative movie? And now this is a spoiler if it's ever made this way, but that in fact, it, it, it wasn't so much the dog, but it was, the dog was what was, what was kind of what the mother and daughter basically through trauma said it was right. And not because they couldn't see that it was in fact, the husband who was doing this. And so it became the dog. So it becomes more of an investigation of like, you know, what really actually happened those days and nights in that farmyard, for example. I mean, that's one way we could keep the dog, but that's one way of sort of making the dog kind of sort of more of a life of pie look, I guess, with more, you know, demonic side to it, you know? I do think that any any remake would really need to figure out a way to to get into Cujo's head a little bit. That is the the aspect of the original uh, movie mm-hmm. that uh, you know they just kind of drop and and that is to me if you're going to do it that is the reason to do it. I don't know how you do it but you figure it out. I, I do love the fact that when we are in Cujo's mind we feel we can almost feel the pain this creature is in. Right. Um, and when he's attacking people. Uh, when we're seeing it from outside in, it's this scary rabid dog with a foaming mouth and, and he's giant and he's, you know, he's so big, he can kill a postman or whatever. But when we're inside Cujo's mind during one of these attacks, it is, this is thing is making a sound and the sound is like driving stakes in its brain. The sickness is mm-hmm. making him a, a, a acutely sensitive to the sound. So like the beer, the beer bottles or whatever that uh, Joe Camber is, is, is throwing away. Like it's driving him crazy and, and he needs to stop the sound. So he's not this bloodthirsty thing that just is killing for the sake of killing. He's trying to stop being in pain. And there is something very, and that goes back to the the sad feeling you get when you read this book and you realize that this is just a suffering creature by itself. 
Um, and and there's you know and then just by the way to finish that arc he it then becomes a source of causality for him everyone he encounters including you know the officer at the end is is the cause of the pain you know he just he says you're you know in this state you are the cause of of this and and you know we don't even want to just limit it to say drug addiction or alcoholism or even rabies i mean there's there's something almost sort of profoundly underworld like about Cujo sticking his head in the in the cave, right? right. Sort of the underworld where where it's death itself that kind of nips his nose and says, "Be careful." And it is that kind of that self destructive mode. And you know, this is where sort of King's delicacies just you know raise the subject because he does provide us with a husband who, despite being betrayed by his wife realizes that he wants to still make it work with his wife. Right. You know, despite losing a child, he wants to make it work. And so he does show us that there is this option of being the good husband. Like even that, even Vic, his final solution for the advertisement problem that they're in is basically to own up to what happened and apologize. Right? He's not there. He's not trying to pitch an ad that's basically going to, you know, to to brush under the carpet the fact that all these kids were throwing up red, even though it was right. harmless. He was basically going to use the sort of the figure of that advertisement, advertising campaign to to sort of apologize. So he is that good, you know, person. And you know, early on, we have to also remember this was came out in what 1981, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean. You know, as 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 prevalent as alcoholism has are, are always been, it was like there was there was already in in this book a kind of a, a kind of a language that was developing of ownership of sympathy towards the dog. This is a creature you can't easily vilify, and I think it's those kind of that kind of instability throughout the book that makes it that makes it such a, a pleasure to revisit. Do you own a dog, Mark? I do not. I have uh, two magnificent cats. Ah. Oh. I would have pegged you as more of a cat guy. <laughs> but you know, one of the things I know about most cat people, I certainly am in this group, they love dogs too. It's, it's, I, I meet more dog people who can't stand cats. Whereas yeah. when you're a cat person, that is, you know, I like fair. horses, goats. You know, I'm, I'm, I enjoy that, that camaraderie. Did you have a dog when you were a kid? You know no, but we had, we had friends who had dogs. You know, there was a, there was a great... Uh, a great Labrador named Dusty who would always cry and bellow whenever a kid was crying in the sort of park. It was really quite wonderful. I'm just curious if you've ever had like a bad experience with a dog or if you were ever actually scared of one. Actually, um, my grandparents uh, lived adjacent to a house, to two houses. One house had two German shepherds one of whom was called Rommel and true to oh, Rommel's God. name, Rommel <laughs> would chase any kid that came close to his territory. And there was a small pond that if you went on the other side of the pond, the dog would come at you. But if you managed to get past the pond, then Rommel would stop chasing you. That's yeah. his turf. Yeah. So we would, we would, of course, try to wander as far up the hill as we could and then run as fast as we could, you know, to escape the dog. Um, but then on the other pro- property, which I hadn't really thought about, there were um, two St. Bernards, huge. And uh, who knows if it was true? I mean, this, this, this is a memory that goes back to when I was probably 
five, six, seven. But we were told that one of those St. Bernards had eaten off the face of a child that had gotten too close to it. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> so I think that, that sounds like somebody wanting to keep kids off their property. Exactly. There's, there's a, there's a nobility to the, to the scary story, right? It's, it's a way of saying, look, let's not risk you getting a bad bite or whatnot. Let's, let's, let's just, you know, keep you away with, with a combination of words. Um, it was interesting though, because that story morphed as we got older. We late, later heard that that St. Bernard had, had bitten off the face of its owner. I think that was before Cujo, but I think there was kind of a, that terror of, of, um, you know, of just this enormous creature that you, you love as well. And it reminds me of one of the things that, uh, Victor Hugo's friend said about the cat, he said, God created the cat so man could pet a tiger. You know, <laughs> and I think there is that thing of like you understand with a cat, it's like you have this wonderful companion. But after a certain size, it becomes a terrifying creature, no matter how friendly it is to you. That's true. I owned a cat once uh, named Red Rum. Fantastic. Uh, it was it was gigantic. There was a point where we were considering, like my girlfriend and I at the time, were considering whether or not we had accidentally bought like some sort of mini panther or something. It was it was just a beast of a cat, and it would hide in our closet. We had a we had a walk-in closet with like right when you walked in the door, there was like shelves going up the right hand side of it, and it would sit on one of those shelves and wait in the dark. And if you like, you went in there to get a shirt or something for work, it would fucking bam, hit you right in the face when you want, it would punch you in the face and it's like a sizable thing. So it was like a, basically if a baby with intention could strike you in the mouth, like that's what it felt like. It was jarring every time that cat hated us. We loved that cat, but uh, boy, did it, it, it did not work. Like it did not work in general because I was also allergic to cats. But I think that part of King's intention here was to subvert the idea, as you've already noted, of, you know, man's best friend. What's more loyal than a dog, you know, and and turning that against you is one of those uh, universal fears that he plays on. So well, well, and also just just noticing, noting how those alliances are always fragile. You know, I mean, we sure we have to note those, um, you know, in terms of our politics, you know, like, you know, democracy is, is a, is a, is an idea in action. And, uh, if we are not active in it, in, in participating in that process, then it will easily become lost, can become a monster, can become inhabited by something that we have, you know, no desire to have in our life. And tear you apart. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some there's an interesting connection here. When we found out you wanted to do Cujo on this show, I thought this was a fascinating choice for you because when I think about Cujo, my first thought is it's set in a car, the movie. Right. You know, that's not entirely true, but that's the it's about the interior of that car. Mm -hmm. It's about that space and trying to survive it. And when I think about House of Leaves, I think about interiors, hmm. you know, obviously. So I was wondering if maybe even on a subconscious level, if, you know, you're just a guy who's fascinated by the idea of interiors, even though the book, you know, granted, is not all based in a car, but it is based in houses. 
it's a family in this house. It's a family out at this farm. It's a, a mother and her child trapped in a car. You know, do you think there's anything to that or am I reading too much into this? I'm not sure I agree with you in terms of interiority. Certainly House of Leaves is a good example. Um, only Revolutions, I feel, is extremely exterior. However, oh, for sure. However, I think what you're what you're getting at, though, if I could just refine the vocabulary, is space. And I think you're absolutely right. It's like there's an incredible precision to how King places you inside the car, the limitations of mm-hmm. it. You, you feel how cramped it is, how hot it, it becomes, you know, how the air doesn't move. And then you understand how far Donna has to get to a place where she's safe, you know, and these various alternates. And so he's very, very, very good at, at within a few words of kind of mapping, you know, out the, the action of, of the, these distances. And I think it can, I'm glad you brought this up because it's easy to, to sort of gloss over, especially in a day and age where you can just, you know, Google map distances and find out very mm-hmm. good approximations at very moments. You know, this is, this was not available. So his, his ability to figure out where, you know, Vic would be in Boston, how long it would take him to drive back to get to the house to, you know, how long a drive of seven miles, like that all takes a, you know, a great deal of work to make sure it all kind of clicks together like, like a, a timepiece. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to revisit it was I was just remembered how, how simple the story was and yet how expansive it became. I mean, you'll recall like at the very, very end, there's kind of a sum up in the, in the newspapers that, um, that lasts for maybe just a few days. And Mm -hmm. I have it marked here, but it's like the, the headlines is rabid dog kills four in bizarre three day reign of terror. I mean, even, you know, it's like King himself reduces the whole story to bizarre. Right, he right. Calls it out. He says, this is a weird story, you know? The, the fate of the world did not seem to hang. It was just the fate of these people. And, you know, I'm sorry, but shame on the movie for allowing the, the you know, the child to live. As much as I'm right. a proponent of living children, I'm a father. <laughs> you know, the, the heroine. Weirdly, Scott's pro-dead kids. For some <laughs> well, time. I don't want them to die. I just don't want to be around kids. Right, you know, of I- course. But I mean, just like that's what makes it so heartbreaking is that this is the price of this neglect of this sort of blindness of this kind of like that. There's even a moment right when the when the mechanics, you don't see this in the movie, are are dropping off a piece for the auto shop and they encounter the growling dog Mm -hmm. and they think we should call someone. And their answer is, what did Joe Cambers ever do for us? And they just forget about it. And yet one call of trouble might have helped that entire family, you know, who knows? So mm-hmm. it's just kind of like you, you kind of wince at, you know, the boy is like, you know, in the book, that's is a beautiful scene that's, that's missing from the movie. They're away, right? And the, the mother sees her boy in her sister's home sleepwalking and he goes down. Do you remember the scene into the kitchen? Yeah. And he's, he's preparing food for his dog. Like, he, you know, he misses his dog that much. And I mean, I guess in some ways, this is also a, a tale of, of two boys, right? One survives, one doesn't. Two mothers, you know, one exits happily her marriage. The other is, you know, sort of resurrects her marriage. But it's sort of, you know, that in itself is an interesting angle. 
too to sort of look at. The whole Tad thing is is one of the most heartbreaking things that King has ever written, and and he's written some pretty heartbreaking stuff. Uh, you know, Pet Cemetery um, in its totality is mm-hmm. <laughs> is full of uh, bummers, a Green Mile full of bummers. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the way he wrote this one, and I can only look at his words on it, and I. To, to kind of give me any explanation why it evokes such an, an emotional response from me. And I think it's because the way King writes is he doesn't, he didn't know that Tad was going to die. So he doesn't write it, setting it up that Tad's dying right. or going to mm-hmm. die here. So he's, he's quite the opposite. He's writing it, setting it up for them to make it through this horrible thing and, you know, try to rebuild the, the whole family unit, you know, mom, dad, kid, but, you know, I think uh, I found a quote where King was talking about writing this and he was saying he was as shocked as anybody else was reading it that Tad dies, that, you know, she's trying to resuscitate him. And he said, as a writer, I was sitting there writing it going, work, work, work. And it just didn't. And he he just felt like that's the way it was. That's the way it came out of him. And as he was writing it, that was the only way that it was happening. Something about that, I think, gives that a little bit of magic, that ending a little bit of magic that a lot of fiction, especially genre fiction, just doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly, I mean, that resonates. And if if you go on, if you go along a little with my sort of speculative interpretation, right? it's it's King at that moment recognizing that, you know, I think his, his writerly gifts are perishing if he doesn't change his behavior, basically. If he doesn't change himself, this is the cost. You know, there's a, there's still a boy that gets away. There's still a boy that, that, that survives, but there's a chance that, you know, that, 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 that vessel of just pure, you know, impulsive creativity can just be beyond resurrection. And, um, you know, and again, that's why I would say Cujo's is Stephen King's most, most personal novel. It's an interesting take because it turns Cujo into something of a flip side to The Shining. Right. You know, another book about alcoholism and alcoholism within a family, but the kid lives in that one. And mm-hmm. this one, you know, the kid doesn't. Um, I'm curious what your feelings on The Shining are, both the, the novel and the movie. Oh, I mean, that's like s- several episodes. Part of the reason I didn't pick it was like, I was like, well, how do we, we can't even begin to, to approach The Shining in a, you know, in an hour. I mean, we have... We have to discuss what, you know, the book, we have to discuss the movie, we have to discuss Kubrick's relation to the book, we have to, we have to discuss the aftermath, the, the anxiety this provoked in King. I mean, it's just incredibly complicated. Um, I mean, it, it obviously is the most successful adaptation of his work. Um, it, it wasn't pleasing for, for him. And that, it, that, that itself is, is, is deserving of inquiry. Uh, right. But they are formidable pieces. And I, I think, you know, one of the things I'm getting out of this and enjoying immensely is just, you know, in, in some ways, the Shining, the movie is iconic. It, 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 it's this closed circuited creation that, that takes in passing, you know, the importance of the shining the book, but really is a is a is a work of art unto itself. I mean, even even sort of the the circular closed off loop of 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 the final picture at the end of the shining, right? That means that he's sort of been resituated into the history of the place. It's just it kind of like this place is closed off. 
But but one of the things I realized is that there's a there's a great deal to enjoying King of just of following sort of the development of these themes of of where the boy dies, of where the boy lives, of where the boy is you know is is as has gifts or you know, and not to make it so singularly male, you know, can't can't forget Carrie and her evil powers as we head towards then Firestarter with you know Charlie something Lee. that's much more powerful and and potentially beneficial and you know. So I mean I think that that there's a there's a pleasure in in understanding kind of how his sort of his dreamlike creations are 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 don't necessarily have to be named as as belonging in Castle Rock but we can just look at these these themes and see how they they develop in his life. Eric, do you have more? Um yeah, I think that the the thing that we need to discuss if we're still kind of kicking around a modern retelling of this story is uh, what Mark has like, already touched on is the technology angle. Could mm-hmm. you actually make this story today? I mean, I, I guess you could always explain a, a cell phone dead zone or something, but there's just so well, it would have to be a period piece. Yeah, it would either. Yeah, it would either have to be set in that time because I don't know about you guys, but like I'm old enough to have been able to uh, to say I was driving around before GPSs, so that was sure. in the old map days, right? So it's. Uh, I remember vividly taking a road trip after it was discovered you could go to a website and type in an address and print out your your route and how life changing that was. But like I've gotten so used to now having a GPS in my pocket that there have been a couple of times in the last few years where I've left the house intending to go to someplace which I know exactly where it is, not even a question. You know, it's, it's only 20 minute drive away. I know the route. I don't need anything, but I've left the house without my phone and without the GPS. And I instantly like five minutes into the drive, realize I don't have it. And I get struck by like, well, what happens if I blow a tire? Like what happens? Like, how can I reach out? I can't reach out to anybody. Um, and the fear that strikes me there, people kind of forget that, uh, that there was a, a time where you just kind of had to roll with whatever the fuck happened to you, uh, which is kind of what, you know, the, the terror of watching Cujo is now because there's just no help. But I just don't know, like, can, do you make, can you make that today with, you know, smart cars that have OnStar with, uh, the cell phone thing and not just have to explain, oh, we have that scene where she looks and sees there's no signal or the phone's dead or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. It's a great, it's a great observation. I mean, I, one, one little bit of advice, it's, it's hard to do, I recognize, but is, is to actually kind of lean into that and, and, and go out a bit without your phone. You know, it, it is energizing. It's important to right. feel that, you know, like, Hey, how do I get around? How do I, how do I activate that part of my mind that, I mean, even, even try getting someplace without using your GPS, even if you have your phone on you, it's kind of, right. it, it's kind of important, I think. And it's easy for, you know, for those qualities in, in, in the mind of the mind to just decay. But I think we're talking about two things, right? Whether we just redo Cujo in the period that it's set, in which case it could almost be like a madman meets mad dog. <laughs> right? Mad, mad men's best friend. Yeah, exactly. So you could kind of, you know, further invoke all the styles of the period. You could make it even a little earlier if you wanted to, depending on, you know, what was, you know, what was the sort of the stylistic game that that you that a director was pursuing or whether it's possible to sort of imagine the consequences of a rabbit animal a rabbit dog in today's day and age now i think all of it's possible i mean right. you know you're talking about your you know the the power grid going down in in um 
in Texas. We didn't we didn't have nearly those kind of outages in California. But um, my wife and I went for three days, I think, without power. So you know, suddenly the food in the in the refrigerator is in peril. You know, there's no lights, there's no warm water, and there certainly is no signal. You know, because you know, there's all sorts of areas where the towers require power. So that was just kind of this odd experience. Now the bright side is we got to know our neighbors better. Right. <laughs> so it was like, but it's still it is possible to then imagine something like that. That's very that's not too contrived. It's feasible. But I think I think the hard part of this is is that is there a place at all for the genre of the menacing animal? I mean, it's mm. you know, it's it's pretty much out in out in the open that we are the the apex serial killers of all diversity. You know, I mean, humanity is just doing an incredible job of just destroying sort of the the magnificent, you know, large creatures and um and so how do we how do we approach that? How do we approach, you know, a sim- and I think that's the reason to do it, by the way, because you have a sympathetic dog. And I forgot, was it you, Eric or Scott, that said, you know, how to get more into the mind of Cujo? Yeah, 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 yeah me. That, that, that's the I agree with it. That's and the so mo- how do we do that cinematically without just a, you know, a, a, a silly POV camera, you know, that's that's. But or, what, or what, God help us, uh, or God help us, a voiceover. We get in Morgan Freeman in here, right? Exactly. I, I think about I I think about this element of Cujo more than anything else, and almost on a daily basis because I have three dogs, right? And you know I communicate with them every day, and I think about like how do they think of me? Like, does each one have? How do I explain this? This sounds like I'm very high and I'm not, but <laughs> um, like the dogs must have an internal thought process where they are thinking of me, like the master, the the man or whatever. And, and that always obviously reminds me of Cujo. It's such an impressive detail in in the novel that I would love to see that portrayed some way i'm just not creative enough to come up with the solution no but i think what you're what you're bringing up though is is like you're aware as a as a dog owner of kind of the the sort of immediate you know ticks of 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 your individual friends right you know their, their personalities what they do how they remember how they forget you know but but you're also aware of kind of this the long legacy of friendship between between canines and humanity. I mean, you know, Homer in, in that beautifully powerful scene recognizes, you know, at the, at the end of, uh, of the Odyssey of like, you know, Odysseus finally comes home and he's, he's dressed up like a, like a homeless man. And, and yet his dog recognizes him and goes to him and then dies. Like that's what he wanted. Like that, that enduring memory of, of this friend, you know, unless you're sort of a heinous owner. Well, even regardless, I think your, your dogs have a deep memory of who you are and you, you, there's a deep importance to who you are. And it might be even kind of one of the weaknesses of, of Cujo is, is does rabies really override those loyalties? That's an answer. I, that's a, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. If anyone listening to this podcast knows it, I'd love to know, like, does it really, you know, 
the, an owner that, that 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 the dog was loyal to for 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 a decade plus would, would rabies really drive that dog into a frenzy? I, I, you know, against that. Owner. I think I it. Know. I think it would. You know, it? it boils your brain. Right, you're just taken over. You know, I, I think of rabies almost like the uh, cordyceps fungus. You familiar mm-hmm. with that? Like no. the or the the thing. If you, uh, I don't know if you're a gamer, but like from The Last of Us, and this is a real thing in real life where there's it's bugs, right? It's like ants. Yeah, it's it's ants and um, insects like that in the jungle. Oh, I think Limbo has one, right? With the the little. You play that one. There's there's a little kind of yes, creature that yes, drops very your very similar to that. Right. Holy shit! You've played Limbo. Love Limbo. Just oh. very another really moving game, by the way. Just so much fun to play. And then oh my god, just sort did, of staggering at the end. Did you play Inside? I have not yet. No, oh my god, the time. Oh, yes. you've got to play Inside. <laughs> you talk about emotionally gripping. Like that ending will tear you apart. Like I have to play Inside, and I have to play Control. I think it is. That's what. I mean, oh yeah, Controls. So. Controls very good. It's it's sort of Bioshockish with you know like third person. But yes, that's exactly right. The thing from Limbo, it like latches onto you, and then it invades your body, and now it's it's directing you. And that's that's sort of how I feel about rape. Well, we could certainly see that happening in, on on various levels of government as well, right? I mean, <laughs> things you can't believe, and then suddenly there's like a an authoritarian, you know, version of our politics that can suddenly start to manifest, you know, horrific ideals. You know, I mean, that's another reason to consider remaking Cujo is that there is a kind of a you know. A t- a totalitarianism of that suffering, whether you want to look at it as rabies, possession, alcoholism, whatnot, of like how how these sort of baser instincts are just, you know, override everything. One thing I'm really excited, happy about, though, is that, you know, sometimes you, you know, what I realized is I read the book when it came out and then I saw the movie. And then I kind of experienced Cujo as the meme that a lot of us did, the sort of, you know, mm-hmm. um, those adolescents attacking cars. Uh, but then I saw the movie again, and I was kind of underwhelmed by its, you know, its obvious kind of aping the paradigm of, of mm-hmm. you know, the movies we already discussed from Jaws on back. And last, I read the book. And the book kind of, you know, revivified that, you know, my reading experience when I was, when I was young, it came out and kind of, you know, all its sort of balances, its quirkiness, its, its nuances sort of began to, to, to come alive again with this just very sympathetic, unresolved picture of a struggling family, a very sick dog, violence that seems to be avoidable that isn't. And, you know, obviously the, that nasty, you know, habit of, of bad luck or chance playing a, a role as well. And, um, and I, I think it will continue to live in my mind as one of those books that's, 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 that's worth revisiting. That's great, man. Um, I, I think this might be a good point to break. And uh, I, 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 why did I just say point break? <laughs> no, no, <I'm> just, <laughs> that's the movie you want to dis- discuss next. Ride Could the wave, Johnny. Do a novelization of point break. Yeah. Point break versus Cujo. You want Johnny out there. It's the grown-up boy. It's the grown-up his Cujo boy, and he runs into uh, to another Cujo, and he just can't shoot him, so he shoots him in the air and screams. Yeah. <laughs> um, By the way, how are you going to approach The Shining? Who have you already recorded something, or what? What are you we, doing? We we did one on The Shining, but also we um we repeat titles. 
you know, as as necessary. If if you want to come back and do The Shining, we will be there all day for it. Like, <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah, the show's way more about people interacting with the title and what it meant to them, and you know their interpretation of it. So we we found out pretty early on that it's not just. Uh, you know, okay, one and done. That's off the checklist now. You know, it's really interesting hearing multiple people come in on a same title. Uh, we had Scott Derrickson uh, was the one who did the Kubrick movie, and you know, he he's a very film literate person, and so he's coming in as a cinephile. Mm-hmm. Um, Although and, you we know, did he, get into an argument over whether or not, like me and Scott, got into an argument over whether or not Kubrick was a cold or warm filmmaker. I stand by everything I said in that, in that episode. <laughs> I think I was but, right, but but you know, I mean, uh, Derrickson knows the the book and he knows the movie, but obviously the movie was the thing that was important to him. So, you know, definitely what we're looking for to revisit that is is probably somebody that can talk about the Kubrick film and also talk, uh, but like lean heavily more heavily into the novel. Um, I mean, it's certainly. It, I think it's deserving of a constellation of of episodes because it's oh, such yeah. a it's such a monument, and it's and it is problematic the relationship between these you know these two authors and auteurs. I guess right, and Mark. So no one ever, no one ever picks it. When we started the show, we were like, okay, so we're going to have to deal with the fact that everyone's going to pick The Shining, and we're going to have to deal with like a lot of Shawshank Redemption requests, and you know, one person has picked the shining. I think I think people are intimidated by it. So, we we did we did have Nick Lutzko do come on to talk about the McGarris uh uh shining TV series, but that was two different you know, things. But, that, but yeah, but that comes again that wasn't even really focused much on the novel other than the fact that the McGarris miniseries is almost just a, a line for line adaptation, which is a very fascinating contrast to the Kubrick movie, which I feel feels more like the book, even though it is so wildly different. So, you know, yeah, th- there's so much fertile ground to talk about that stuff. So yep, you're all, if you want to come back and talk about the shining, we'd be more than happy to have you. Well, let's, yeah, let's revisit it. I mean, let's see how this goes and let's, you know, I have uh... I have my own work to of course. attend to. In uh, fact, that, right. is, that actually is my news, by the way, is that uh, I have finished the first draft of a new novel, which I'm very Ooh. excited about. Oh, shit. Um, I would not get too excited because from my perspective, a first draft <laughs> is the equivalent of an elaborate punch list with yeah. you know a trillion items to, to do. But um, it is very exciting for me, and it, it's uh, – it's been sort of recuperative in this time of isolation and uh, it is kind of a veer from what I normally do. And I I've kind of enjoyed that. And it speaks a lot to what you were saying about King's discovery that the tad was dead at the end of Cujo of just that kind of understanding of like, you know, that there is a force that moves through authors and, and, and basically you can only, you know, transcribe what it's doing and, having that experience is, is, has been, you know, exhausting, but pretty great. And, um, you know, I'm trying, I'll try to sort of keep people up to date on the the website, which is markcdanielewski.com or various, you know, it's, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and, um, Instagram. Um, but the other thing is we've also reopened the, the house of leaves forums for a while. We had to close them down because they were getting hacked all the time. And, and so we basically had to, to walk those hallways. Yeah, it was just, you know, it's just, it's expensive to, to keep these things going, but we finally migrated the whole board to the cloud and it's got a much stronger infrastructure. 
And so now we've reopened them and it's kind of fun to see more people coming back. And what were they think, doing once they hacked your forums? Oh, they, it's, it's, it's basically the equivalent of like digital vandalism. They've just put up a placard that says, you know, I've, I've managed to, you know, corrupt your index files and, you know, fucking look nerds. At, look at this. Well, no, it's even more humiliating than that because I asked like, <laughs> is there really a kid in Indonesia who like hacked my site and put up his little placard? And, and the guy, the security expert was just like sighed. He goes, no, some kid probably wrote a bot and it's probably been hacking about a thousand sites a day. You know, you're just one of them. So we didn't even get hacked by a person. We got ha- hacked by a bot. You know? <laughs> uh, but now but it's back up. There's your Cujo sequel, your remake. It's an AI dog that gets hacked by an Indonesian kid. You know, that is, that's another way of, of looking at it too. It's like, what if it was kind of an AI dog, a kind of, a, you know, Philip K. Dick, uh, so well, Andy, now we're we're veering very dangerously close to uh, man's best friend territory. Have you seen that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh boy, it's about a robot dog who's very bad. It makes uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to fuck around with that <laughs> that that movie. But this was a delight. Uh, just yeah, an honor to speak to you as always. Please come back. Uh, we, you know, anytime you want, you drop us a line. And uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, gentlemen. Many thanks to Mark for joining us for that very in-depth, detailed chat. I know, Scott, this was uh, one that you were super-duper excited about. So did it live up to your your uh, expectations? Yeah, of course it did. This man is <laughs> I could infinitely... Tell. I can tell you were into it. Infinitely more intelligent than I will ever be. I, I could read any number of books, and uh, this guy would have schooled me anyway. I'm beyond honored. That we had him on the show and, uh, you know, that he um, came to play. Yeah, he wasn't messing around. This wasn't one of those like, yeah, sure, I'll do your little thing or whatever. Like he, he came with notes and fucking deep thoughts and shit. We're going really to we're gonna get married. Yeah. When's the yes. date? Am I invited? It's July 4th. <laughs> Mark <laughs> doesn't know yet, but we're getting married and I love him. How's uh, Amy feel about that? Oh, I don't know. I haven't talked to her about it yet. I don't think she's <laughs> going right. to like that. Well, you got you're gonna build yourself up a little uh, like Mormon compound. It's it's gonna be great. Oh, oh yikes! <laughs> well, uh, I would also like to take a little sidebar here to thank all the listeners for the great response that we got to our April Fools' episode last week. Yes, we uh, we put a lot of time and effort into uh, doing a whole ass episode <laughs> all about Dean Koontz's Phantoms, and uh, many thanks again to Kumail Nanjiani for coming to play. And uh, we we are very glad that all that time and effort that everybody put in uh, was received so well. It definitely like lifted my spirits and made me happy and bright. Yeah, there was a, a chance people were, were going to be mad about it. Yes, we were yeah. worried about that. Too, yeah, we definitely to didn't want to make it feel like we were sitting beating up on Dean Koontz that whole time or anything. So mm-hmm. so uh, we we definitely went into that whole thing trying to be very positive about Mr. Koontz's work, despite all the calls for toilet papering his house early on in the podcast run. Uh, There is no animosity to Mr. Koontz on our end. So we should probably talk about what's on the horizon. Patreon bonus episode this Friday for our Patreon subscribers. And next Wednesday we have, it's time to reveal what the title is. So which one do you want to hit first, Scott? You you do this one. I want the bonus episode. So next Wednesday on the main feed, we are making a return trip to Salem's Lot. 
We will be discussing King's book and and a lot of the mostly the Toby Hooper uh, TV movie uh, with a bona fide star in the horror realm. Uh, an icon, probably an icon, an, I- an icon, a uh, queen. Definitely genre royalty joining us next week to talk about Salem's Lot. And uh, do you want to tell everybody what the Patreon bonus is this Friday? Some of you are surely aware by this point that there is an Indian TV adaptation of it called Woe. There were 52 episodes of this. So this was a like a long running series. Eric and I were both very curious about this. So to get to the bottom of this, we sought out a guy who grew up in India. His Twitter name is at name Shiv, S-H-I-V. Uh, his name is Shiv Ramdas. Very funny. This guy knows everything about Whoa, why it was made, who these people are involved with it. Yeah, very in the weeds on Hindi filmmaking. And it's a really fun jaunt into a world that most Westerners aren't that familiar with. Very fond of this one. That's hitting our Patreon this Friday. That's at patreon.com slash the Kingcast. You can always visit us uh, on Twitter at Kingcast19. You can buy shirts. We still have shirts available. That is at thekingcast.storenv.com. Pick up some merch. You can always rate and review us on iTunes. That's always helpful for more people to find the show. And that's about it, I think. So we'll see Patreon folks this Friday for Woe with Shiv Ramdas. And next week in the main feed, we will be revisiting Salem's Lot. All right. See you folks then. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Truly.